Welcome to the API experience. 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 Hi, everyone, and welcome to the API Experience podcast. My name is Matt McClarty. I'm the CTO of Boomi, and it's great to be here. Joining me today, shockingly to everyone, Mr. Mike Amundsen. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Shocked as ever. What's going on with you over there? Uh, you know, I think we, you know, we, we, we always enjoy having our wonderful guests on the show. Uh, you know, we've had some phenomenal insights from all of our guests this year, covering a, you know, the widest array of API topics. Uh, had a great session with uh, Eric last time. We had a, a great one with Claire before that. Um, yep. So it's been uh, it's been fun, kind of launching this this uh, new podcast and uh, you know all the new stuff going on in the in the API space. But today, you know, we're we we're, we get to do something that we, I think we both enjoy as well, right? Instead of uh, just being in the interviewing seat, we don't have a guest today. It's time for Mike and Matt to just kind of chat about API stuff. So, what do you think? Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of how this whole thing started, right? Is we just found that you and I always had always had an opinion about something, and so this is yeah. a handy way to uh, to share that and and include a lot of feedback from uh, listeners and other sources. So, yeah, I'm very excited to talk about t uh, our topic today. And about our experience uh, today. Yes, yes, we will hopefully provide a experience, and it's, it is true, right? This was sort of our our entree into podcasting was talking a lot about stuff and saying, I don't know, you know what, we should probably write this down. But podcasting is even, <laughs> even better. Yeah, it's even better. Let's just record it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so here we are. All right, today's topic. Without further ado is one that I think is not on anybody's mind. You know, it's just <laughs> back burner niche stuff. No, today we're going to do it. It's time. We are going to tackle the role of APIs in the AI revolution. There you go. AI, API. I'm ready. Let's go. Okay. All right. Do it. I mean, we're, and we will be characteristically pedantic here, I think, because man, we could do a whole episode on what is AI. Right, that would take us back. Oh, absolutely, centuries. Absolutely. But we'll try and we'll try and keep it in as as close to present day as possible. We'll see. So, you know me. We'll see. Well, yeah, we'll see. Well, I said we'll. It's try. a challenge. I said we'll try. We. You did. I appreciate succeed. that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I so, I think that um, maybe what spawned this uh, topic, although it's been you know even on our opening episode when it was just the two of us were kind of laying out the landscape. AI was right there at the top of the list, but we did have a compelling event this week. I think that's um, right. We had the Open AI Developer Day, which was yep. uh, okay. I'm going to say it, and you know, I'm probably getting myself into trouble here, but <laughs> to me, it felt like very clearly modeled after an Apple keynote. Like I felt kind of like oh. I was watching uh, Steve Jobs announcing the iPhone there. Like I yep. don't know how you felt about it. Well, yeah, it was it was a bit of history repeating itself, which is just fine. I, I get it, and I think that's a great template for doing things. Um, 
my own my own my own feeling on it is it kind of got in the way of me paying attention to what was really you know being talked about the six points and so on and so forth. But hey, listen, people uh, people can do what they want to do. This this is a very uh, this is a very fraught space. I mean, this is a mm. triggering uh, to me anyway. This, you yeah. know, this AI thing is pretty triggering. You talk about history, and you know mm. we've had AI winters more than once, and I suspect we'll have more of them. But right now, it's summer, it's sunny, it's uh, bright, it's cheery, and we got to look into another version of what the near-term future is with the uh, with the keynote uh, just this, uh, what was it, last week, a week ago? Yeah, or November it, was, it was just this Monday. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, I think it was just this Monday. And, and uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. It can be, it can be triggering. And yes, we are pretty much on the AI beach uh, uh, in our sunglasses uh, right now in terms of peak, <laughs> peak hype, but yeah. there was some real substance to that keynote. Not, yeah. notwithstanding, okay, I, I, you know, I'm just going to take a little farther, like, Felt like a little bit like an AI simulation of an Apple keynote. If I'm, if I'm, uh, I could just <laughs> templates or templates. Just something well, like you know that uncanny valley that you get in with things. Sure. It just was like I'm not anyway. For I, I'm sure there were real people in the room that will object to my oh, characterization absolutely. that way. But there was some real substance. We'll kind of visit that substance. But after all, this is an API podcast, so we're we're you right. know we'll we'll we got to keep things in context. So I'm gonna. I'm going to open a question to you to start us off here. Okay. What would you say is the, if you had to, you know, when if you had to bring it down to one sentence, like what is the role of APIs in AI? Yeah. Well, the short answer is uh, APIs is the only way it works. It's the <laughs> only way to, to actually make AI do something, listen to something, say something, ingest something, produce something. So yeah, AIs are, APIs are the key to AI, which I think we kind of all knew, right? Because APIs are the way other things connect as well. I mean, we need to start treating this, this notion, this cloudy notion of AI as a resource, as an opportunity, as a, as a, as a unit of work, as a unit of storage, however you want to think about it, then you need an interface. And that's what APIs do. That's me. Yeah, completely, and and it's it's been one of the interesting things to watch now. Uh, you know, working with a lot of organizations who, when the lightning struck with ChatGPT launching in December last year, uh, you know, I think there's there's a real reckoning for a lot of organizations f- trying to figure out what does this mean. You know, what do, what do we do now? Because it, it's not like AI wasn't on the on the horizon for, mm-hmm. for companies, mm-hmm. but I think that really gave it some urgency. To say, okay, this is a this is a game changer, and I think there can be a, a bit of a path of going down into the rabbit hole of AI and training, and you know, there's there's it's an entire ecosystem yeah. underneath those models, and I yeah. think a lot of organizations are like, what do we do? Do we train our own models? Do we have to get all this data? And I think maybe APIs are the are the great uh, equalizer in the in the landscape because you might not need to do all that stuff. Like maybe if you think about these amazing new services, the fact that you can abstract them behind an API makes them very accessible for organizations. Like you can get a lot of the goodness of AI without going beyond the API. Exactly. In fact, I think the way the way we're doing large language models, which are the really popular item right now, right, mm-hmm. um, is, is a great... Uh, 
example of why APIs are so valuable and powerful because language model training and language model content and computation is incredibly expensive, vastly expensive. If you look yep. behind uh, Bard and Claude and uh, you know ChatGPT and Perplexity mm -hmm. AI, all these people that are using these models, it's incredibly costly to put these together. So everybody doesn't have to do that. So accessing repositories, accessing storage and resources is what APIs do well. And, and that's a great opportunity. I, I think rolling back just a little bit, you know, I think the, the thing that uh, the chat GPT, that open API or mm -hmm. open AI, open AI, right? yeah. sorry, it's open all, AI happens all the time. Believe me, ooh, in our circles, ooh, it happens all the time. <laughs> man. I, I think one of the things that open AI did really, really well is their first powerful interface was a user interface, was a UX. Mm -hmm. I type in a box and it really hit. I mean, people really love that ability to kind of have a conversation, whatever. And I think that's what really flipped the switch for so many in like, oh, this AI thing could be really powerful. And then of course it makes sense that I have to scale beyond an individual human. And I do that with an API, with a machine API. So I think that's what's really what's really happening here. So machine, as machines do more things, then they need those APIs, right? Even, even, if, even if the APIs are hidden because they're actually using APIs right now to do the training and the loading and so on and so forth. So I think, uh, I think this is, this all makes sense. This is all very, very logical. There's a kind of an arc to this. And I think we're really just scratching the surface of the API design because now we have to do that, right? We have to mm -hmm. design interfaces for our machines to talk to these AI repositories. And I think that's a, that's going to be very exciting up ahead. Yeah. You're, you're so right. Like the, this notion of autonomy um, is only <laughs> possible with machines talking to machines and how do they talk to each other? They talk through APIs. You did make a point there though, that it's, a, I'll go on a little bit of a tangent here. The fact that, that open AI got everyone excited through the human interface, mm -hmm. notwithstanding, mm -hmm. there's going to be a lot of uses for that human interface, but maybe there's a lesson there to API providers who are struggling for adoption. Like it's always, if you really want people to understand what it is you're providing and, um, you know, be able to get excited about it and see where it's useful. I think having that yeah. UI, uh, you know, attached to it, that, that gets people understanding what it does in because, because I think people just naturally think of interfaces to software in a UI context, even if it's API. So maybe, maybe there's a little lesson there that would get. I, I hope, I hope hype. there is actually, because, because I think, you know, one of the other things that a human interface at UX really gives you and that open AI did really well is it made it not only cheap to try, right. I just mm -hmm. type, but it also made it not dangerous to try. In other words, I don't have to have you know, have a big investment and mm -hmm. then worry that it's going to error out. You know, it really it really brought the power of large language models directly to people right up front, like you were saying before, like having this interaction. And I think that's that was a brilliant strategy. We've had large language models for something like fifteen years. We've talked mm -hmm. about these, and it's all been about like how many variables and vectors and so on and so forth, we can handle at a time. We keep getting better and better at that. But they've been around for more than a decade. It wasn't until we could get to the point where we put a good experience on mm -hmm. this large language model that it really seemed to flip the switch. Yeah, completely. And, and when you, you talked about making it uh, safe to experiment with and cheap to experiment mm -hmm. with, uh, 
you know, possibly to the peril of open AI as a company, because I think it was, it, again, we, there was all this deja vu, right? I'm talking about the, uh, the Apple keynotes and the iPhone launch and the sure. app store launch, which we'll get to the parallels there. But I remember, you know, I remember around 2008, 2009, when Facebook had just crossed the 1 billion user mark, how there mm. was a lot of, a lot of, uh, articles about how they could, they had no business model. They might go out of business. They weren't, they never revenue stream. There was kind of that same thing going with open AI through the middle midpoint of this year. Like, Oh, you know, because it's so expensive to run these models. Are they in trouble? Yeah. I think that, you know, what part of what we saw on Monday is that a real, a new business model that, that, that even sort of mimics the Facebook platform. Uh, uh, oh yeah. Developer platform launch around that same time. So the other thing that people weren't thinking of back in the day for Facebook is where the revenue stream was revenue stream. Mm. Wasn't, uh, you know, it, it was, it was on the actual data. The real value mm -hmm. for Facebook yep. was the collection of data. And we need to think the same, we have need to have the same clear thinking on open AI platforms as well. And that is the real value is the data people type into it mm -hmm. and the way they apply it. Uh, and that's, that becomes monetizable. And I think that's the thing we have to keep in mind. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you, maybe some people have heard us talk at length about value dynamics and, and sort right. of business models and the role of data in an economic sense being so unique as this, uh, non, uh, non fungible, non rival, uh, good. Yeah. So anyway, okay. I won't go down there, but I just to. That's another episode. We can <laughs> that's another episode. <laughs> Maybe we've done elsewhere. Uh, but on the keynote and on the substance of the keynote, right? Mm -hmm. um, a big part of it, and maybe it was, it was probably towards the end, and we will share the link to the keynote in case anyone didn't yeah. see it. It is, it is worth a watch for lots oh, of definitely, reasons. definitely. Uh, a big part of it was this launch of what. OpenAI is calling, believe it or not, GPTs. So backstory for me here, I having been pretty deep into the Gen AI space now for several months, um, looking at particularly at the practical application of generative AI in a business context, um, I'd seen this pattern emerge where... Um, you know, you kind of get, you want to get a conceptual model of what this AI landscape is going to look like. And what came probably much more clearly and quickly to other people I was working with, but to me, maybe <laughs> took a while, is that there's this concept of an agent in the AI world. Mm -hmm. And agents are not what you might think of, uh, you know, me, Mr. Legacy IT guy. When I hear agents, I think of little software bits you install on remote platforms to connect to some central thing. Nothing like that at all. So agents in this Gen AI context are essentially apps. Like if you're going to build a generative AI uh, application, we might call them agents. And there's this real, you know, big expanding school of thought around how agents are going to work in the futuristic AI landscape. And there's even people like uh, David Shapiro who are talking about this idea of agent swarms and the path to a, you know, AGI, you know, general intelligence, mm -hmm. like, but I'm, I'll hold back on that. To me, agents right now are really a good way of thinking about what, what apps are going to look like in the AI landscape. And there's, there's even some standardization around, I think the, the concepts that empower agents. 
So an agent is this generative AI based app that will focus on a particular scope of functionality and try and help you do, do a job in that area. So it could be, you know, an agent that helps you write code, or it could be an agent that, that writes essays for university students or something, right. God, God forbid. Right. Uh, it, there's all these different, you know, it could be a travel agent, right? It could be sure. an agent that helps you book stuff. But there's sort of three elements that I'm seeing standardized going into these agents. Number one mm. is instructions. So this is, mm. what it, I've seen people say this is a, the personality of the agent, but but really it's like giving the scope to the agent to say, to you know, you give you give some information to the LLM that says you're going to build an agent that is going to have this purpose in life and this, these characteristics. Like it okay. will say something like you're a very polite uh, customer service ah, agent okay, who's yeah. mm-hmm. responding to, directly to customers, and then you're gonna you know y- y- your your purpose is is these is the kind of the scope. There's also knowledge that you give to agents. So a big part of the the, the initial gap that we saw in LLMs is you can only train them up to a certain point on a certain set of data. So they kind of, they don't really know what's, they're not hip. They don't know what's going on out there in the last <laughs> couple of years right there. Yeah. They, they, and, and uh, I think that, uh, but the other side of that is they're generally trained on this big data set. They don't know what a particular company's data is or a particular person's data is. So, the knowledge is the stuff that you give to the agent to say, here's the special information that I'm providing only to you for my purposes, which, um, you know, there's, there's this retrieval augmented generation is a, is kind of a technique that we're seeing out there to do this type of thing. But, but in an abstract context, just think about the special fine tuning grounding information that you give to an agent to say, here's, here's the extra information you have to do your job. The final bit is actions. So this is, what the agent is able to do. And to your point in the opening, Mike, you said API is the only things that make AI work. This is where, you know, a big part of where APIs come into the AI landscape. I think because in general, in practice, we've seen this in Langchain, which is kind of a Python-based open source approach to building these large language model enabled apps. They they talk about agents and actions AWS's LLM stack has agents and actions, uh, and and these GPTs that that OpenAI just announced, which are essentially agents, also have this notion of actions and action groups, which are all basically bring an API, and the API can be turned into an action. So the reason I'm going into such detail around this is because I think this will be sort of a conceptual model that becomes established in the AI landscape as people start to build useful things with large language models. Well, yeah. So you started talking to me about this a couple of days ago too, and it, mm-hmm. it kind of got me to thinking. So what what I'm hearing is this notion that there's a set of instructions, mm-hmm. there's a there's a set of knowledge and a set of actions that sort of make up this this agent technology, right? And, and I caught some of that from the keynote, but I think you've been doing a little bit more digging than I have on this. And it really, this, I mean, this tracks uh, very, very closely to what we've been talking about for, uh, you know, several decades on this sort of, you know, artificial intelligence space uh, that goes all the way back to Peter Norvig's, you know, 1990 something, 1995 book on artificial Hmm. intelligence. I think it's probably one of the key textbooks for any AI Hmm. classes. And 
he had a model or he and another author, and I can't remember who the other author is, but they had a model of this idea of perception, like sensing things in the world. You could think of sensors, you know, for robots or sensors for, uh, you know, uh, different things, the ability to change the world and take some actions. The idea of knowing when you've reached a goal, like I need to make the temperature in this room a certain temperature, what's the goal and what are the actions and what are my sensors? And then what's the room look like or the environment or what what context do I have? Context is a huge challenge for, for any machine intelligence, uh, you know, because words have multiple meanings and things. So hearing you, when you started to explain to me what, you know, what the agent architecture is, this sounds very much like we're just folding in stuff that we've had, you know, for decades on this notion of an agent, what an agent is, and how to start programming them in pieces. Because each one of the ones you mentioned, right? Instructions mm -hmm. is like a set of tasks. Knowledge is, a, you know, is a repository. Each one of those is a huge job in and of itself. So I, I'm really fascinated about this notion of agent becoming part of the sort of the current lang chain kind of kind of a technology so um i mean yeah. have you seen examples of this now i mean do they there are organizations there are companies i guess who are doing the gpts right they're not yeah um, i th i think what we're seeing is and, we, and even in the keynote again keep going back to that mm -hmm. they gave a couple of examples of gpts they're building and this is not a slight to open ai at all but what we're seeing i think is the there's some pretty rudimentary use cases. So what you're describing there around environmental understanding, situational awareness, yep. sensing the environment, like I think that everybody recognizes that's a big opportunity space. And when you look at how the reason why I think, and I think even in the Lang chain space, like the, the name is Lang chain, they actually distinguish <laughs> between chains, which are more scripted, yep. like do this, yeah. this, and then yes. if this, then that type of uh, orchestration versus yep. agents, which are more thoughtful. And, and I, I, I still cringe a little bit about it, but they, they talk about the LLM being a reasoning engine. So yeah. where the LLM yep. would be reasoning as to what is the right thing to do next to, as you said, to accomplish the goal, which I think is right. sort of in the instruction set that would be given to an agent. So yep. we are, it's, you know, crawl, walk, run, I think that it's not surprising that even the agent examples that we see out there are not going to be so, you know, have that level of situational awareness and they will be, and it's almost by design because I think this, the instructions, right. the scope that's given to the agents will be very, very well bounded. Um, and it, but, it, but going back to something else you said, like that keeps it safe because, right. and, and even I think, I think uh, Sam Altman and an open AI was talking about, deliberately not go, trying to run too fast down the, <laughs> down the path. Like we're capable of doing more than what we're saying now, but, but it's actually worth letting us collectively as people get used to things in order to take the next step. So I, I think, it, but I, but I think what's interesting though, I think is you brought up the Norvig stuff. Like if it's, if we're seeing that what's happening is mirroring some of the great thinking that's happened in the past, which, Hey, how often does that happen? Um, maybe, you know, maybe he was already identifying the areas where, you know, we're, we're not there yet and we need to go next. This is the API experience. 
Yeah, I mean, again, like the Norvig stuff is like a quarter century, almost 30 years, 30 years in the past. And of course, a lot has changed since then. Um, mm. Our ability, like the amount of computation and memory that was available uh, to the uh, Norvigs of the world and the other AI thinkers, you know, uh, a couple of mm. decades ago is vastly more powerful now than it used to be. And that's, and that's a key, one of the keys to success. Um, I think the other thing is, is as you were, as you're kind of mentioning, the, this idea of sort of focusing on the knowledge and maybe scoping this is really, really important too. Way back even further than the 90s, uh, I think in the 70s or 80s, there was a thing called Sherdlu, this idea of a, creating a world where a, where a robot or a machine could recognize objects that it already knew about in that world. Mm -hmm. The simplest version was show me the triangle, pick up the square, so on and so forth. That, <laughs> I mean, this is part of that perception and action and goals and environment. So there have been lots of versions of this. So I think this notion of agents is leading us to agents that are really smart at spotting um, anomalies on x-rays or hmm. dealing with simple things like um, maybe parking tickets or <laughs> like you said earlier, travel planning, trip planning. We're hmm. going to start creating agents that have an environment or a set of knowledge that they can operate safely in that world. And of course, that means that they can start interacting with other agents, right? I think you also touched on this as well, right? Shapiro's talked about this idea. So I yep. think it's smart to say, well, let's, let's kind of, let's downscope a bit and get more refined and more accurate mm -hmm. at this level before we take the next steps. And, I, and I'm encouraged, I was encouraged when I saw that part. There, there is an API implication there because I think we were talking about it and speculating around agents interacting with agents. And I was suggesting, mm -hmm. you know, well, then your agent needs an API. I actually yeah. had some other conversations afterwards oh. uh, with a couple other folks who are deep in the, L, the Gen AI space. And what's interesting is their experience of having agents through the, through the conversational interface try and come up with, you know, very well-crafted, repeatable a API uh, structure calls is sure. not good. And, in, no. and you can, and so if the natural interface for agents is actually conversational, natural, like it's actually natural mm -hmm. language is the natural mm -hmm. is the native tongue <laughs> of these agents. Then what's interesting is then, well, we now have a new machine interface that is not like looking like a structured API. It's looking a little more like some ambiguous, uh, some ambiguous language. So that'll be an interesting thing to watch, I think. I, I think so. I think the other thing, uh, I've I've kind of come to the realization of the thinking that the use of, so far, of the use of the technology that we have, these large language models that we're, we're seeing so much of, it is handy for taking machine-oriented information like a, open API documents or JSON schemas or so on and so forth, and then turning them into natural language. In other mm -hmm. words, reading reading the open API spec and then generating API documentation. Mm -hmm. I think that makes sense because of what you just said before about like the accuracy and the variable. In language, we have a, you know, a lot more freedom. It doesn't have to be like perfect. But I think the other way around is we is not good. The idea of reading some kind of uh, natural language narrative and generating an open API document, I don't think that's right. Mm -hmm. So I exactly. think at least for the for the current term, this like you just said, I think with the accuracy and the language emphasis that we have, using 
LLMs as a way to interpret or translate or uh, summarize uh, information, including machine information, is going to be super, super powerful. It's a powerful way to get things done. Yeah. And so so I guess they, they can be reductive in the summary sense, but not necessarily yeah. in the deterministic, uh, repeatable <laughs> sense. Right? Yeah, that's that's actually a much better way to put it, right? There, the, There's much more non-determinism in, yeah. in their output. And that's just fine. We should We mm-hmm. should make that a strength and not complain about that and not try to go against it. That's good. Exactly. Design principles. Um, you, you know, one of the other things that we, that one of the other areas, it seems like we, you, you know, you'd brought up that was in the Norvig stuff, I think was really around this notion of planning, which, which oh, yeah. kind of, kind of, uh, I, I never really thought of it that way. And I, I, I thought that was, that was quite interesting in, in, you know, is this even being haha planned for in, in the Gen <laughs> Good, good use of language. No, well, that's I. I think that's what agents are supposed to be doing, right? Like I played mm-hmm. around with a little bit of agents uh, uh, recently, and you give them a task, and there's a lot of subtasks. There's a lot of other things to do. Uh, mm-hmm. Donald Norman used to call this the action life cycle. He still calls it the action life cycle. The notion of I have a goal, right? Like I want to turn on the light so I can read my book. I got to go. That means I got to have plans. I got to go into the room. I got to find the switch. I got to flip the switch. I got to test and see if it changed the world looks. Oops. I hit the, I hit the wrong switch. This didn't turn the light on. There are all these things that we do and that's planning. All of that is planning on how we reach the goal. I think one of the promises I get from Altman and others is that they want agents to do the planning. Hmm. In other words, you give them a goal and they'll actually come up with the steps. That's asking a lot. Uh, you know, so far machines have been terrible at planning, you know, what's the goal? Am I there yet? Uh, how do I get there? When do I give up if I can't get there? And I, the, I think the example I've used in the past in my talks is, uh, a Wozniak's, uh, AGI test, which I love. He says, park a robot in the street in front of a house and tell it to go inside and make coffee. Now think about how much planning you've got to do to pull that off. Right. That's general intelligence of, of some type. Right. Yeah. You might get coffee, but you might also have a giant hole in the front of your house. Right. Yeah. You'd, or or they might try to make coffee with uh, with sand instead of coffee grounds. I mean, there's all sorts of possibilities. Right. And yeah. I think that so hearing about agents again, to get back to the sort of the original question that you were talking about, hearing about agents lets, you know, leads me to think, oh, this is this is an opportunity. And. I love Wozniak's model because he has a seemingly simple task, the goal, but it has so much to do with navigating the environment and perce- perceiving what's mm. going on and ha- setting sub goals. Like, how do I get over the curb? Let alone, how do I get in the house? How do I find the kitchen? So um, I think that's where the scoping down of agents in the near term is going to be so valuable and so powerful because I can just come up with an agent that knows how to get into a house and that's going to be helpful. You know, it's, it's steps along the way, I think. Mm-hmm. So I think the takeaway from this, this uh, particular uh, subtopic here is pay attention to agents. It's, it's a, it's an important concept <laughs> yeah. to learn about. I, I think yeah. that we will be seeing this a lot as, as Gen AI kind of takes off in all areas of the software engineering landscape. But to, to maybe bring us back, fine-tune our discussion, ground our discussion, uh, rag our discussion, I'll go back to uh, 
to talk about APIs, you you mentioned you know this idea of generating API documentation. What what do you see as you know Mike's predictions for some of the some of the other implications around AI for the world of APIs? Yeah, yeah. This is where it gets really dangerous. I'm on thin ice with every step here, <laughs> but here's here's the ones like like the one I just mentioned. Here here are the things I think about. I think. The use of language models, large language models, really gives us an opportunity to rethink API documentation in lots of ways. Hmm. To get language models to read uh, machine docs and output human language docs. I think hmm. this will also change the way we even think about deploying and publishing documentation. You know, if I can get to the point where I can get documentation generated in a way that's useful to humans, it will also become the input for other agents to read that documentation. It'll change search, I think, in a lot of ways. It'll make search easier. Problem with search searching on API catalogs is I kind of have to know what I hmm. what I have in mind. I have to know what I'm looking for before I find it, right? But yep. with large language models, I can be a lot more non-deterministic, a lot more vague, and I can get led into some other areas. One of the things that large language models are great at is pattern recognition and relationships and so on and so forth. And I think that also means the same for things like designing APIs. You know, we, we're pretty good at converting wireframe into UX, right? Into, mm -hmm. into UI. We need to start thinking about converting some kind of description or some kind of artwork, some kind of visualization like you can think of visualizing state diagrams and turning that into documentation or open API mm. documents. I, I, I think there's a lot there. Even designing the, you know, designing the service itself, the boundaries, you know, give it a whole bunch of information. Maybe it says, oh, well, you need seven services. You can have mm. a kind of a, a clippy chat, you know, like it looks like you're trying to write a microservice, you know. <laughs> I think there are all sorts of things. I think testing, you can generate penetration testing based on, a, you know, an interface. You can rethink security, I think. Uh, you can. Uh, there's all sorts of possibilities, I think. We're just on the edge if we keep things in order. This, this is, these are the things I think about. So I mentioned you know, documentation and design and services and testing and security. But what do you, how about you? I mean, you, you've been at this long enough, too. What are you thinking in terms of where this kind of power leads for, for API, for the API space? Well... I'm just going to pause for a second because let's just pour one out for Clippy. I think, you know, no, nobody got more shade than That's Clippy, right. but, but Clippy right. lives in our public consciousness, right? Clippy, <laughs> uh, Clippy brings an emotional reaction from everybody. I think that yes. deep down we have to finally acknowledge our collective love for Clippy <laughs> and, and realize, you know, that Clippy, Although it was, you know, Clippy was kind of like the Jar Jar Banks of Windows. Um, you know, we, I think Clippy has been so useful in, I've heard it so much lately, like, well, you know, it's like Clippy, uh, you know, our, oh, our, yeah. our CEO, Steve Lucas uh, brings up the Clippy example to great laughter and applause every time, but it, it. it resonates. Everyone loves Clippy. But back, back to your question. Um, right. Okay. So I actually, you know, if I even narrow the focus a bit from APIs to API management, I did okay. a talk at API Days Interface in June, and this was like, you know, way early in my own personal AI journey, but I think I think it holds up relatively well. I brought up four areas where, and, and some of them overlap a bit with what you're describing here, mm. but, you know, if we look at the landscape of like the problem space of API management, I think it's fair to say 
that API management, uh, or, I guess, originated with, uh, I think Mashery may have coined the term back in 2008, wow, right? It's, wow. it's, we're 15 years into API management. Yeah. And, and, it, and, and we've seen lately, you know, I think um, we talked, well, we talked uh, last time with Eric about the, unbund- the great unbundling that's happened in the API sure. management yeah. space. But I think that there's like API sprawl is definitely a new problem that is comes after the standard API management solution set that's out there today. So I think that there's definitely some help provided in the Gen AI space in dealing with API sprawl. And I think it starts with the discovery that you're talking about. Like, mm. how do you just find all the APIs that, that you don't even know about? I think right. that you can't manage what you can't see. And uh, so, it, you know, it's getting in control of that problem starts with visibility. And I think there's a lot that, that AI can do around finding the APIs. And especially, um, although, you know, the caveat is garbage in, garbage out, like there are going to be some APIs that are so cryptic and so so poorly annotated that you won't even know what they're for. But I think in a lot of cases, you may be able to utilize AI to find out, oh, well, here's an API and we think it does this. So there's, and there's, I mean, there's some interesting tooling already out there in the market that's, that's already attacking that problem. So I think that's one area. I think that uh, um, similarly, uh, we've got these, like, what is an API? And we run into this problem all the time. We've got this, some people who would be uh, pedantic about, uh, you know, API only refers to like a RESTful web API. Um, and then even that probably opens another can of worms. But, you know, these synchronous <laughs> synchronous HTTP-based APIs, we've got a lot of ways of having oh, components yeah. in a distributed architecture communicating. So yep. I think API and what we do with API management, which is fairly mature now, I think we have to extend that to all the other protocols and API right. protocols and event streams and so on. And I right. think that, again, we have to kind of separate concerns there a bit. And so having having a semantic understanding of the whole landscape of available interfaces and functions in, a, in an IT estate is something that AI can probably help with more moving from, you know, API management to more broadly general digit, digital asset governance. I think that's one area. Sure. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. One of, one of the, maybe the, the biggest ones, which is probably one that people have been anticipating for a while is around API, changing our frame of reference in the API management world for since its inception, probably, we think API management, a lot of times we immediately put ourselves in the seat of the API provider. Like, how do I take what I have and turn it into some APIs that I can publish and make money from? That's kind of the original thinking around API management. It's extended into all places. But a lot is what's been consistent is we've always kind of looked at it from the provider side. I think now, because all these AI-enabled services are themselves APIs, there's going to be, and we were already seeing this, like a huge uh, rush to consume APIs. And and what you brought up earlier, Mike, about how expensive it is to build these LLMs, it's going to be a, a finite small set of foundational model providers, which means the ratio of consumers to providers of these particular APIs is going to be massively skewed towards yeah. the consumers. So. And and the nature of the of uh, something else you said around the data being the value here, um, 
it's it's going to be on the consumers to be careful about what data that they're providing to all these models, yeah. right? Because you want to maintain your balance of uh, uh, you know balance of value. So I think that just opens up a whole new category of API management around managing the consumption of APIs, which deals with risk and privacy and security and and even discoverability factors into that. So those are the main points. You know, I saw, I think, I think, and, and I just alluded to in the last one, which sort of dovetails with the, the governance side, security is a big one. Every year, right? Every, every week we see a new API breach <laughs> and every right. year we say, oh, this is the year that API security finally gets its attention. <laughs> Maybe this yeah. is finally the thing that does that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think, I think the, you hit on a couple of things that really resonate with me, that heterogeneity, the idea that um, we have to, uh, expand our governance or our management beyond a particular format or protocol style or something like mm -hmm. that. And becoming, you, you mentioned the word more semantically aware, like thinking of sort of an additional layer of abstraction on all of these things. Like this is, this is a service that does X, not this is a Kafka service that, mm -hmm. you know, is async driven, blah, blah, blah. It, you know, it, it has that other abstract level gives us an opportunity to get a much more, comprehensive picture a much more uh you know a, a much wider picture of what's really going on inside an organization i think this is particularly true for enterprises mm -hmm. um and i think it also makes it possible to incorporate or uh you know some kind of integrate uh or interop uh, different kinds of apis together to see how they can all fit together in a better way and i think uh you know, a, sort of an AI abstraction is a great way to think about it that as well. Now, a thing that we've also talked about, which I was really, I really wanted to ask you about is this notion of, um, are things, are things going to disappear? Like, does, does this application of AI make APIs go away or uh, eliminate uh, parts of APIs or we don't need it? Maybe we don't need API management anymore. What, what does AI well, change or even eliminate? You think? That, well, that's that's on the table. I mean, that's that's a, that's a, a legitimate question to ask, and and I'm sure you can go out and find articles today that will tell you you don't need APIs. You don't even need software developers. You got LLMs. You, you, go. you got a, a developer agent's going to build everything for you. I mean, there you go. I don't know, maybe, but uh, we've already given an example of where the determinism required for mm -hmm. good uh, stable distributed systems uh, is much better provided by via API than by via AI, at least at this mm -hmm. point. But, but I do think, you know, talking about that mindset, mindset shift of from provider to consumer, I think that the, the there is a mindset shift that's going to come as well, which we've been, and I know you, Mike, especially have been kind of uh, well, not necessarily shouting from the rooftops, but <laughs> emphasizing to people that, yeah. you know, we've got a lot of focus on the syntax around things. And when we think about API design, a lot of times people get, you know, get wrapped around the axle of pagination or versioning or, or whether to use, uh, you know, uh, path parameters or, you know, headers and, and so on. Like there's all these debate topics in the API design space. And I think for a while you've been talking about, well, what about the semantics of APIs, right? You have, uh, you have Alps that's out there as a way of sort of profiling applications and giving more information and equivalence around semantics. So 
I think that like so much of the focus of generative AI is on the semantics of and, and determining the semantics. Like I think that may be a shift that happens. Maybe we do get out of the syntactic weeds and mm-hmm. we will focus more on the semantics because as you said, when you're, when it comes to API discovery, like right now, I think we're still even 15 years into the API management market at a pretty primitive point of trying to discover APIs where we're doing keyword searches on various places where, you know, like I was doing this yesterday, literally scanning through API reference documents just to try and figure out what exactly is the resource I am looking for to meet my business need, right? I think that maybe now we can finally step above that fray and think more about semantics than syntax. Well, I, I, I think that's a really interesting interesting point of view. Yeah, you're right. I have spent a good deal of time over the last several years talking about sort of raising the abstraction level toward mm-hmm. semantics and away from syntax, which I, I think is, is, is what you're emphasizing here. And that goes back, again, that actually goes back to Hofstetter and a lot of other AI stuff that goes back to the 80s mm-hmm. about the, the, you know, the thought that the way our brains really work is that we just keep adding more and more generalizations and abstractions until suddenly we come with some creative connection between two things. So I think that's definitely something that, that we should be prepared for. And I would love to see that a generalized focus on the semantics or the meaning or the goal or the task rather than the technology. If that, if that means the technology becomes sort of safe, cheap, and easy, and you start creating knowledge or instructions based on, you know, sort of the, the pieces of the puzzle rather than the details of how they, how they fit together. I think that's a, a fascinating way to think about it. And a lot of information architecture thinks the same way. You know, the idea of having an ontology or meaning and a taxonomy or how you organize the meaning and then a choreography of how you use that meaning to, to solve a problem or reach a conclusion, which I think all continues to point in the same general direction. I think this is incredibly interesting. You know, may you live in interesting times is the, <laughs> is the curse, right? I think this is an incredibly interesting moment in AI and API and machines and people. And yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of danger out there, but I think there's a lot of opportunity that we can focus on. And I think I find it fascinating. Yeah, completely. And, and time flies when you're having fun. Uh, you know, <laughs> we, we, uh, we, there's lots more we could cover on this and I mean, I'm sure that we'll be doing another episode on this topic, but, but this has been good. We didn't go, I think we, we only went back to the seventies, I think. So we're, that's right. Know, we, didn't, I, I, we, yeah, didn't go, we, we did pretty, did pretty good, right? Not too bad. We, we're only still, a half a century. We stayed in the sort of personal, com, personal computer era there. We didn't go fully mainframe there, but anyway, no, this is. Great discussion, uh, great insights. I mean, I think there's, uh, as you said, there's lots to be careful about, um, maybe some stuff to be afraid of, but plenty to be excited about. And it's just yep. fun to be riding this wave of, uh, of innovation. And truly, you know, if we sort of opened with the catalyst for this, this episode to be that open AI keynote, like it really is just representative of the unbelievable technological innovations that are going on out there. And so just just fun to be in the industry right now. So thank you as always, Mike. Yep. Great to talk with you. We had a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. And, and thank you to the audience for listening. If you made it to this point, 
(laughs) We love you. All right. And uh, we're really excited about bringing you the next API experience. Bye for now.